Living on Earth relies on your generosity to broadcast each week. Please donate now at LOE.org. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. This week, we bring you a special broadcast commemorating the 40th anniversary of the Clean Water Act of 1972. We've partnered with EarthFix, a public media collaboration in the Northwest that focuses on energy and the environment. And with me for this special broadcast is Ashley Ahern, environment and science reporter with EarthFix and public radio station KUOW in Seattle. Welcome to Living on Earth, Ashley. Glad to be here, Steve. When we look back 40 years ago, we had raw sewage spilling into waterways. Ohio's Cuyahoga River had caught fire. It was so polluted. And fish were washing up dead by the thousands in water bodies across the country. And Ashley, think about these numbers. Of the 3.6 million miles of rivers and 40 million acres of lakes in the United States, nearly two-thirds were considered deteriorated. That's right. No big surprise then that the Clean Water Act had overwhelming support in the House and the Senate when it was introduced. The act was supposed to make the waters in this country clean enough for fishing and swimming. And Ashley, you talked to the guy who had to see that those goals were met. Bill Ruckelshaus is a Republican. That's right. He was the first administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency back when it was created under the Nixon administration. He's had a long career in law, business and politics, and now he lives in Seattle, where I sat down with him at his office. Thanks for being here. Take me back to the time of the creation of the Clean Water Act. What was the feeling of the times that made the EPA necessary and made the Clean Water Act necessary? Well, the sentiment was uh, an explosion of public concern about the environment. It was caused by a number of factors. Uh, Rachel Carson's book, which had been written in 1962, uh, had a cumulative effect that was quite pronounced in the country at the time. We had flammable rivers. You already mentioned the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland. Uh, We had people in Denver wanting to see the mountains and people in Los Angeles wanting to see one another. It was a terrible time, and I can remember the first time I moved to Washington, the air was brown as I'd go to work in the morning. There was no industry in Washington. That was all automobile pollution. So people not only heard and saw problems of pollution on television every night, they witnessed it on the way to work. So it really created a demand that something be done. Uh, What people have forgotten is that the Clean Water Act was vetoed by President Nixon. Uh, That veto was overridden overwhelmingly in both houses of Congress by both parties, even though the election was just two weeks away and President Nixon was 20 points ahead of Senator McGovern, his opponent, at the time, and still his own party overruled that veto overwhelmingly. What was that like? What were your conversations like with Nixon? Oh, they were so wonderful. Uh, (laughs) I had sent him a letter uh, prior to his decision as to whether to sign or veto the bill spelling out why I thought he should sign it, why I was in support of it. Uh, His principal concern was that he had asked for $5 billion to devote to the sewage treatment plant grant program at the federal level, and they'd put $7 billion in the bill, and that got him quite agitated. He thought that was too much money, uh, so he vetoed it. And the, what the override of that veto really shows was the overwhelming public support that existed at the time for cleaning up the water and the air and handling all kinds of environmental problems. I want to play some tape for you that might sound familiar. It's from the NBC Evening News Archives from 1971. 
William Ruckelshaus, the Nixon administration's head man on environment, was on the stand today before Senator Muskie of Maine, who has dwelt on this issue himself. They were talking about clean water. How long is it going to take? Aren't we going to have to require some kind of national deadlines in order to ensure there's no inequality of treatment as between regions? The states just don't respond with equal speed. I think that's right. Each industry in the state must be placed on a deadline. And it's, it's through this method that we can get uniform treatment across the country of putting everybody on the same deadline. That guy sounds familiar. <laughs> he doesn't sound familiar to me. <laughs> Muskie did. But no. <laughs> that deadline you were talking about ended up being 1985. There was supposed to be zero discharge of pollutants into navigable waters by 1985 is the quote, and quote, swimmable, fishable waterways by 1983. Looking back on it, was that a reasonable deadline? No, it was not, nor any more than the 1975 deadline for clean air throughout the country was reasonable. The Congress believed that setting deadlines, even if they were somewhat arbitrary and not likely to be achieved, was necessary both to demonstrate the urgency of the need for the problem to be addressed and at the same time maximize the pressure on the administrative branch uh, to get moving to try to show improvement. I can remember testifying in front of Senator Muskie that if we stopped doing everything we were doing in the government, we couldn't achieve these these deadlines. And the, the problem with them was not the sincerity with which they were uh, being suggested by the Congress. The problem was you doom an agency like EPA to failure before it starts because we can't get there in that period of time. It had taken us hundreds of, year, hundreds of years to get where we are today in terms of pollution, and you simply can't clean it up overnight that was always capable of being portrayed as dragging your feet and not doing the right thing. In my view, it was just a statement of reality that we couldn't do it in that period of time. So the act passes, you've got this new power and the money to make the changes and build the infrastructure. What happens next? What's going, what's going through your head? Well, it was, a, it was a marvelous opportunity, in my view, to try to show the American people that their demand for that legitimate demand that something be done about a societal problem would trigger the right kind of response from government. And it was up to us at EPA to do the best job we could to respond to that legitimate concern uh, that was, was affecting public health and the environment. We had less than a third of the uh, cities in the country providing adequate sewage treatment. In some cases, no sewage treatment. The sewage was just going directly into waterways. And that was causing waterborne diseases. It was causing all kinds of problems. We just had ignored it from our, essentially, from our beginning. Uh, and this was a massive effort on the part of the federal government to deal with this problem. What would have happened if we hadn't had the Clean Water Act? What did it allow you to do? Oh, that's a very good question. The way to measure progress is not just against where we were when we started versus where we are today, but where we were when we started and where we would be today had we done nothing. There are thousands of miles of waterway that are much cleaner today than they were 40 years ago as a result of treatment being put in or discharges that were going in that have not uh, have been corrected. And as I say, that doesn't mean we're home free. We've still got work to do and always will have. But we're a lot better off today than we were 40 years ago. What do you see now as the biggest challenges when you're saying more work to do? What's the t what would be the top of your list if you were in charge today? 
The biggest problem by far is non, what's called non-point source pollution. The point sources are water discharged from sewage treatment plants or from major industrial facilities. Uh, and those were the things that got the most attention when we started because that was 85% of the problem. That's what EPA estimated was true. Uh, the other kinds of problems are runoff from city streets, runoff from suburban lands, from farmlands, from rural lands, uh, and those are so-called non-point source pollution. It doesn't all come from a one, one single source. And the, the situation is just reversed today. EPA's current estimate is that 85% of the problem is non-point source pollution. That's a much harder problem to get at because it isn't a single plant or a single city that's discharging. You can put those cities, which we've done, in industrial facilities on permits. Permit spells out what they have to do to keep the water from being polluted from their discharge. They have self-reporting requirements. If they violate any of the terms of the permit, uh, they can either be fined substantially or put in jail if they violate on purpose the, the requirements of the permit itself. So that that problem is largely under social control. I'm not saying it's gone. You still have to stay with it, but it's largely under social control. The non-point source problem is all the rest of us. That's the ones that we're all convinced we're not doing any of this. This is all some terrible person or some terrible industry or city that I have no control over. But getting people to manage their land in such a way, to control their lives in such a way, that they don't contribute to this non-point source pollution problem has proven to be very difficult. I want to talk politics here for a minute. It seems like in recent years, Congress has had a hard time reaching any sort of bipartisan agreement on anything, really, <laughs> let alone environmental issues. But 40 years ago, at least when the Clean Water Act came into being, things looked different. Why is the environment a partisan issue now? And how do Republicans get back into the game of protecting the environment? Well, they're not, those Republicans in the House in particular, I think probably true in the Senate as well, but the ones in the House that have passed a lot of laws recently through that House, not through the Senate, uh, that would take authority away from EPA to regulate this kind of stuff that would even abolish EPA in, in the case of some of those laws are a result of people becoming to believe that the regulatory system itself is imposing unfair burdens on industry, on the American people. So that when a Republican politician uh, rails against EPA for excessive regulation, they don't get the same kind of feedback they would have gotten 40 years ago when these laws passed unanimously by the Congresses, their predecessor Congresses. And when they ask EPA, why are you doing what you're doing? Because the very body I'm testifying in front of told me to do this 40 years ago. It's still in the law. You haven't amended the law. If you don't want me to enforce the law, then don't put it in the law that I'm charged with, with implementing. And I've seen the current Congress say any regulation that costs over $100 million a year, we should review as to whether or not it goes out in the form in which it's been promulgated. I would be tempted to give them that authority. And, and you go ahead and answer the questions from your constituents about the impact of doing this on their health, on their environment, and see how much you like making these kind of decisions. They wouldn't last six months under those conditions. Now, it'll never happen. They'll never get that kind of authority to go back. But the difference today from where we were 40 years ago is where public opinion is. 
if public opinion was as intolerant of what's happening to our environment and our public health today as they were 40 years ago, you wouldn't have a partisan split on this issue. There, there was almost unanimity that something be done about it. So what changed? I think a number of things changed. Maybe the most important is success. The EPA may well be a victim of its own success. We don't see the same kinds of visible pollution problems today that we did. We don't have flammable rivers anymore. I mean, we don't have smog that's so awful that you can't even see one another. That was a situation back in the 60s when the public's concern began to express itself. We still have problems today. They tend to be more invisible. Uh, they tend to be things you can't smell, touch, and feel the way you could 40 years ago. And that just doesn't get its public attention. We're also going through a terrible economic time right now. And the more the economy, whenever the economy deteriorates, uh, support for the environment deteriorates as well. You're a grandfather, right? Right. Twelve times. Wow. So I'm if you... part of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> So if you listened to this interview with your grandkids, or if your grandkids heard this interview, what would you want to tell them about the Clean Water Act and, and what it meant for you in your career? Well, what I'd want them to know is that uh, their society, their government, can be responsive in a democracy to their legitimate demands, and that where problems are identified and the government is supported by the public and serious about dealing with them, significant progress can be made. So the government isn't always the enemy. The government is sometimes a necessary institution for dealing with problems as, uh, as widespread and gross as water pollution was. And it's an example of our country having successfully grappled with the problem. So don't, as you grow older and as you mature in your understanding of the choices that we have as a society, necessarily rule out a governmental solution for a problem that you have. It's not the best way to solve all problems by any means. But there are some problems that we're in it together, just like our president has said. Some problems you can solve yourself, others you have to solve together. Water pollution is uh, right up at the top. Mr. Rucklesshaus, thanks so much for joining me. Sure enough. Thank you. Bill Rucklesshaus was the first administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency back when it was created under the Nixon administration. So, Ashley, I'm wondering, what's he up to these days? Well, Bill Rucklesshaus is really a senior statesman on the environment at this point. I mean, the man has not slowed down or even really hesitated for a minute on the clean water issue. He's just wrapping up some groundbreaking work leading a panel that was convened by Washington's Governor Chris Gregoire to deal with ocean acidification, which is starting to hurt the shellfish industry in a big way here in the Northwest. Ah, yet another emerging threat to water quality. And he's on it. Coming up, we'll be back with a look at current threats to clean water in the U.S. You're listening to a special program with EarthFix on Living on Earth. Stick around. 